Well, Barukaim Habayim to everyone for the Bet Midrash for Parsha Kedoshim. This week, we in the diaspora are in that Torah portion, and in Yisrael, they're already in Parsha and more. So uh, we'll be playing catch up until the end of the book of Numbers. So uh, everybody who is studying two Torah portions every week, uh, Mazal Tov to you and Chazak. Uh, that's a lot of studying, but Baruch Hashem, it's an opportunity we have since we get the opportunity to follow rabbis from Yisrael, including our my very own Rabbi Trugman, Shlita. So um, yes, so we're going to be in Kedoshim this week for Magin Yashenu, and I want to direct everyone's attention to the chat thread. I put up the email for our Bet Dean, so I'm going to reshare it right now, so that way if you're just joining the chat, you'll be able to see it. Um, see here, I gotta make the window bigger. There we go. I think it's gonna work. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, there we go. Everyone can have uh, information to reach out to the Bet Dean. We have three Zekanim on our Bet Dean. So that is Zekin Yosef, Zekin Moshe, and Zekin Manasha. So when you send an email to that email address, uh, all three of them will receive that email, and then they will be able to uh, discuss and figure out who can do the follow-up communication if it needs to be all three of them, they will also uh, decide on that as well and then follow up with you from your message to set up a time that works best for all parties involved. So uh, meeting with the Bet Dean is a very significant process, so it's not something to take lightly, which is why going through the email process as opposed to just calling and having a phone line uh, is the way that we're going about it. So the other thing to mention with that is don't let any situation get so far out of hand and then try to do like a last minute, last resort to the Bet Dean. As best as possible, try to uh, take care of any situations you have on your own or phone a friend. If those avenues don't work, then that's when you bring it to the leadership. Our Mashiach actually tells us about this. You know, when you have any, any, any type of issue, go directly to the source. Then if that source and you aren't working out, you know, grab leaders of the community to do so and then, you know, run it up the ladder. So there's a step process that you want to go through, but you don't want to just run to the bed, Dean. You also don't want to let the situation get so out of control that you're like, I need to talk to someone right now. You know, like give yourself that time, that space and structure because you want to make sure that you're being mature and how you're handling any of your dealings. Some of the things that the Baked Dean deals with, you can actually find in our master plan book. So if you have this, the very first chapter of master plan actually goes over this. And I just wanna give this, uh, this little introduction first before we actually get into our studies tonight because it's such a very big, big topic and a very um, big deal for the community get to chapter one. <laughs> okay, there we go. So just society is found on page two. And it already goes into um, justice uh, laws, law courts, which is the Bate Dean. So you can look here on uh, page three to be specific. 
these are any of the issues that you could actually approach the bet dean for just to kind of give you a little summary uh financial things uh social dispute things anything that has to do with the welfare of the community on the spiritual side of matters uh, and then any of your legalities if there's damages or anything like that the bet dean is the basically like the legal spiritual court that you go through i am not a bet dean member so that should also be noted uh that you know i do work with the bet dean but i am not sitting with them judging you you need to either have uh three five or seven or run it up to 23 and 70 plus one you don't have an even number of bet dean in case there's any type of voting for judgment and you can't have an even number of uh, votes basically so you have to have an odd number so that there's one to actually cause the balance so if that makes sense so i want to mention these things before we get into tonight because this week's Torah portion is all about structure. You know, you need to have proper uh, dealings, not only with Hashem, but also with each other. So without further ado, let us go ahead and get into our blessings before study. And this is right here, sharing my screen. Page 17 in your Art Squirrels to Door, if you have it, I'm going to read the, the Ivrit. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kirishanu B'Metutah B'Tivanu, La'asok B'Divrei Torah, V'Harevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divrei Torateka, Befinu Ufi Amka Beit Yisrael, Venie Anaknu, Vetsa Etsa Einu, Vetsa Etsa E Amka Beit Yisrael, Kulano yodea shmeka velomde torateka lishma. Baruk ata Adonai ham lame Torah leamo Yisrael. Baruk ata Adonai Eloheinu menekaolam asher bakar banu miko haamim ve natan lanu et torato. Baruk ata Adonai noten ha Torah. Mashiach now. All right, so if you'll join me in master plan tonight, we are in uh, chapter 20. So getting back on schedule uh, with all of our uh, getting ready for Pesach and coming out of the diaspora and things like that, we've kind of been off a little bit. And then last week, I wanted to make sure as we were really getting into the Omer count that we get uh, all of our all of our um, knowledge and everything that we need to know about the Omer count, like any significant mitzvot, significant events and things like that covered. So last week is all about that. And as I mentioned before the recording, that tonight is the Israeli Memorial Day, known as Yom Hazikaron, which commemorates or we uh, remember all the fallen soldiers that happened with the wars of Israel, especially since 1948. And we should also know that this day actually precedes Israeli Independence Day, which is Yom ha Ha'atzma'ut. And so when we were able to officially declare Israel as a state and, you know, it was all legal and everything like that, that is what we will commemorate tomorrow. So we have an interesting sequence where we have, you know, Holocaust Remembrance Day just eight days ago. And then now we come into the Memorial Day and then right into that recognizing, you know, the, the sacrifices that it took to actually bring about the establishment, just like we we should understand here in America that when we're celebrating the 4th of July, like we can't forget 
you know, our Memorial Day that we have as well, which precedes it by maybe like a month or so. And um, we, we need to remember that there were people who fought and lost their lives for the attainment of freedom. So in, in Israel, we put them together and in America, they're separated a little bit, but you know, we should also note that they're very connected. And uh, one of the interesting things that happens as well on Yom Ha'atzma'ut is that they do have barbecues, they have big celebrations and concerts and parades, just like we do for 4th of July here in the States. So uh, some really cool similarities on that, but yes, definitely today is, is taking that moment of silence there is a siren that goes off right before sunset coming into this day in Israel and everyone stops. You know, uh, if you're driving on the highway, you pull over to the side. You know, if you're in the middle of doing whatever you're doing, you just stop and the siren goes and it's just a moment of silence, just remembering all the fallen soldiers. And then there are services that happen um, throughout the following day. And uh, one of the things that we'll prayerfully do tonight is read two of the Psalms that uh, are customarily read during this time. So um, that's basically what we're in right now. So um, may we all remember those who have fallen in all the battles. There have been many, many wars, continued wars going on in our land. And so uh, until the Mashiach gets here, you know, it's just kind of, you know, staying on guard, being aware and things like that. So let us keep that in our minds as we study tonight. We're in chapter 20 in Master Plan and page 79. So it says regard for one's body. Um, we have disfigurement, tattooing, tonsuring, which is leveling the hair at the temples. So if you've noticed uh, different uh, types of Jews who have what are known as payout, these are the curly temple uh, locks that they have. Sometimes they get braided, sometimes they're just straight, sometimes they're curled. Uh, so that's what those are. So we find that here in uh, our chapter tonight. So we have Deuteronomy 14, one through two. We have Leviticus 19, 28, and we have Leviticus 19, 27. So two of our halakhic bases for this chapter come from Parsha Kadoshim. So section one, our, marvel, our marvelous body, says in their pagan frenzy, the priests of Baal gnashed themselves as was their custom. So if you remember the incident in First Kings with Eliyahu and the prophets of Baal, this is what we're talking about. It says in the modern world too, we are not familiar with cults whose members or Slika. In the modern world, too, we are not familiar, unfamiliar. Slika, we're not unfamiliar. So we know about what cults are, uh, whose members disfigure themselves in various bizarre ways. As children of God, as a people dedicated to showing the world how life in this world can become a blessing. So I just want to point out this phrase children of God. So B'nai Elohim, which is the plural of Ben Elohim. Now, if you remember when the Mashiach was asking his disciples, who do you say I am? And Kepha says, you're Ben Ha Elohim. 
you are the son of God. Well, it's interesting because the children of Israel are called B'nai Elohim, the children of God, like plural, Mashiachs, basically. So just to, again, kind of reiterate something that we've actually talked about before, we actually mentioned it last week when we were talking about who is Kol Yisrael, who is all of Yisrael, that is the Mashiach. So further connecting this point that when you're known as the child of God, that is you being in the Mashiach. And there are people who actually don't want to associate with Hashem, which is another whole topic. But when you really look at who's really in Mashiach and who's not, and what is the purpose of being in Mashiach, which makes you a child of God, it says this, it says that we're dedicated to showing the world how life in this world can become a blessing. So many times you can go around and ask people, you know, what do you think about the world? Da, 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 da. Some people, I can't wait till it's over. Some people feel like this is Gehenna. Some people feel like it's heavenly. Depends on where you travel, <laughs> you know, because some places you go and you're just like, this cannot be, you know, because it's like, how is this even real? You know, you Google some of the pictures of the places on earth that exist and you're like, wow. Well, the same thing can be made manifest in you as a human being in your household, in your town, in your city, you know, in your state, wherever you live, you can actually turn that area into a blessing. It's not just about the space, you know, it's all about the people as well. And so this is another thing that we're called to be elevators of people, like peoplehood, you know, and the, the whole thing about you know, giving people the benefit of a doubt, you know, bringing out the best in others, showing the glory that still exists in humanity, even though it's in a fallen form, you know, we can rise above that. The next part of this sentence says we must treat our bodies with respect. Part of the blessing of showing peoplehood and showing the best of humanity is what we're actually doing with our bodies. You know, it's one thing to watch our actions and watch how we speak and watch how we think, but the outer uh, external picture that we're showing with that is what are we doing with our body? You know, are we gouging it, marking it up, you know, um, maiming it, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's interesting that when you look at one particular example, that before the 60s, how people used to dress, how people used to act and the mannerisms that people had when they carried themselves, you know, versus what happened after that, when people started, you know, not covering and not being uh, people of manners and etiquette and how the downfall of morality just tagged along with that. And so it's really important that when we focus on how we're treating ourselves, we're going to focus on how we treat other people and how we're conducting ourselves in general. So this week's Torah portion, Kadoshim, is all about that. Like if we're not paying attention to what we're doing to ourselves, then obviously the fallout is going to be just chaos in relationships, chaos in society and things like that. And we as children of Israel are called to rectify that. And we don't rectify that by going out uh, picketing and, uh, you know, putting, beating people into submission and, uh, shaming and all those kinds of things, we become shining examples, you know, like when you light up a lamp in a dark room, the, the lamp doesn't go around telling darkness, what's wrong with you? Smack, smack, you know, it just, I'm lit, I'm here. 
And because of the radiating effect of light, it, it pushes the darkness back. And this is the same thing with us. There's a radiation effect where it emanates from us. It goes out, it pushes out. And so these things affect people on a subconscious, even to a conscious level. Sometimes you never know what people uh, think or feel about what you do, but it, it impacts them. Sometimes you may know, sometimes you might not. And the Groffs, may they both live and be well, were sharing about this, you know, with me on this past Shabbat that, you know, the change that their neighbor even goes through because of what they do. And they're just like, we, we don't really, you know, and I'm like, hey, that's the power of Torah. You know, it really just, it emanates out. It causes people to do things for the good or for the worse sometimes. Bezrat Hashem, more for the good, right? So uh, continuing on, it says that the human body, the most marvelous and complex system in the universe, the human body, most complex, like most marvelous and most complex, our bodies can regrow cells. Sometimes they can um, regenerate actual um, skin and parts of the body, you know, and things like that. For instance, our nails, Bezrat Hashem and hair, right? Some of those things they regrow and you're just like, I just cut it off, you know, and it's like, well, it's back, you know, like Wolverine type stuff. So, um, and then to think about all of the systems, like from the nervous system to the endocrine system to the uh, all of the digestive and all those things that work like a crazy well-oiled machine, that's right, Hashem, you know, if we're taking good care of our bodies anyway, there's like all these processes our bodies go through, not to mention the spiritual side. We have five levels of soul within us that range from like our natural desires all the way to our super rational, uh, supra rational abilities and connection to Hashem, to all things spiritual you know, and the gradient on that with the gradient on what's happening in our physical bodies. It's like, this is like crazy. So it says this about that. It says this was designed by God for a high purpose. One of the things this immediately made me think about is where to strain and press towards the high mark of the upward call in who? The Mashiach, which is Israel. So again, complete the circle. Yisrael is called to bring about a high call, a high level, a high dignity and glory to Hashem through the human body. And here it is that our bodies were created for that exact purpose, to live up to that upward high call. And then it goes on to say, we may not mutilate it in any way. One of the crazy things is to we should know anyway, is we should understand the spiritual effect of something physically that we do. Like for instance, if you cut yourself or if you abuse yourself in any way, there's a spiritual counterpart to that. So when the Torah tells us about things that we should not do to our body and we go about going, okay, Torah, whatever, and you just start going to do it, it's going to cause spiritual damage. And part of what's going on in the world today is because of that. You know, so, um, and there's many examples that we could go into, but I want to keep going here because the next section is about the proper care for our body. 
And it says proper care of the body, it's cleanliness, it's attire is a mitzvah. So the beautiful thing about Hashem is like our mitzvot have such a span, like a such a spectrum. Part of one of the 613 mitzvot is like us physically caring for the upkeep of our bodies, <laughs> like how we dress and how we groom it. So cleanliness, they say, is next to godliness. Well, cleanliness is also connected to holiness. Because that's this week's Torah portion, Kedoshim, which is holy ones, saints. That's actually the, uh, the colloquial way to say this Torah portion, saints. So then it goes on to say, on the other hand, the Torah does not want us to go to the opposite extreme and lavish exaggerated attention on our bodies, their beautification and adornment. So there's a, there is a balance, like don't let yourself be a slob, but also don't get too um, over uh, extra on yourself, as they would say, don't get too extra, don't get like way over the top. An example of this, Parsha Bayeshev with Yosef. He started, oh man, I'm cute, you know, looking in the mirror, starts doing his hair and like, you know, perfuming up and makeup and all these kinds of things. And, and Potiphar's wife like, oh, yeah, you are cute. Let me talk to you for a minute. And then horrible things <laughs> ensue after that. So that's actually one of the uh, commentaries from the sages that tell us, like, Yosef actually brought on the test of Potiphar's wife. He brought that upon himself. And you think about the, the crazy struggle and what a, a challenge that was. But he brought that on himself because of how much he, he made vanity a thing in his life. And so if we really get too extreme, basically what the halakha is telling us, we could also end up causing problems. So we can cause problems by taking it to the extreme. And we can also cause problems by disregarding everything. So just like it is with Musar, there is balance. And we have to be mindful of these things. And the Torah gives us that middle road, that straight and level path. So going on, it says, this would not be treating our body as an instrument of the divine. Page stuck together. <clears throat> so this would not be treating our body as an instrument of the divine purpose, but on the contrary, as a pagan idol serving our baser selfish concerns. Moderation in all things is the Torah's order of the day. So this pretty much summarizes what I just mentioned, but I want to bring up another point about the Mashiach when it comes to this halakha. He showed us the ultimate end of deifying the flesh. This is one of the reasons why he was actually put on a crucifixion stake is because that is the end of a person who wants to glorify the human body. We shouldn't disregard it. We shouldn't disrespect it. We shouldn't elevate it beyond what it needs to be elevated to. So when we really look at another aspect of the crucifixion and why is it so important to understand why the Mashiach subjugated himself to such a death was because this is the end of causing ourselves to become idolatrous and idols. We could turn ourselves into idols. We see it all the time in Hollywood. 
you know, where it's all about the superstar. It's all about the movie star. And the thing is, even some of those superstars now are coming out with interviews. I think they've been happening before, but it just seems like an influx lately that even the superstars themselves, they feel like objects as opposed to people. And the, the side effects of that is these reckless actions and, and uh, statements and, and just things that they do. Chasve Shalom, suicides, you know, those things happen. Uh, just outbursts to, you know, other human beings and things like that. But these are all horrible side effects of what's happened because we have caused our bodies to become idols. You know, we, we forget about the creator and focus on what the creator created. Yes, our bodies are marvelous. Yes, they're complex. Yes, they're awesome. We can do many things with them and cause an otherness to reality to be affected. But it's like, don't get that out of balance. You know, remember Hashem. You know, he's the source of it all. And it's the same thing, you know, when we think about the word of God. Sometimes we get so fixed on the word, we forget about Hashem. You know, uh, Shlomo sent this to me. And I want to uh, read this. So Shlomo ben Hillel, that is, may he live and be well. I asked him. <laughs> when I was telling uh, uh, telling the Bet Midrash, I think it was last week or the week before, that the true Torah study is Musar. So when we're looking at the mitzvah for to studying Torah, that is the Torah we should be studying most and uh, first and foremost is Musar. Yes, study the Torah portion, Haftarah, the Basora, get your Halakha in there, get some Talmud, Midrash, all of that. It's a full package deal, but encompassing that all should be a musar you should at least get a word of musar a class of musar take some time in your journals and things like that this is why we have a musar class in magi yashenu because it is important i always talk about it not just because i think you know batya and leia are amazing may they both live and be well but seriously we need this there was a whole movement in judaism in the past called the musar movement for a reason, <laughs> you know, because you can learn and, and do amazing Torah study all day and pray all the time and be a person of acts of kindness, but you can throw all of that away by being reckless in your attitude and your thought life and your speech life, you know, and things like that, how you treat other people, you know, how much you regard or not regard Hashem, you can throw all of that away, which is sad because we talk about the pillars of the universe, the pillars of the world is Torah, prayer, and acts of kindness. But all of those things can be of null and void if you are demeaning to your wife, if you are disrespectful to your parents, if you are you know, hateful to another individual. Not to mention the big topic from last week's Musar class. Why do we bring in the incense to the Holy of Holies? Why is that such a big part of the Yom Kippur service? Because of this thing known as Lashon Hara, evil speech, slanderous speech, murderful, murdering speech. It's murderous. Like our speech murders people. And the worst part about it is it's secretive. Sometimes the people that is getting, the person that's getting murdered doesn't even know about it because the Shonhara kills three people, the speaker, the one who is being spoken about, and the one who is listening. 
that's a whole lot of ground being covered. And the, the person who's been spoken about may never know the person speaking it, unless they're studying Musar and studying what Lashon Hara is, they may never know that they're murdering someone. Many of us talk about the top 10 all the time. Like I'm quick to be like, oh man, top 10, you know, as a joke. But when it comes to Lashon Hara, that is literally top 10. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. So we need to be very mindful that the holiest day of the year, the holiest person of Israel is the person who is bringing an offering specifically about Lashon Hara because it plagues us so, so much. This is one of the main reasons why we're still in exile and we don't have a temple because people Lashon Hara all day and just think it's okay. And we're, we don't educate ourselves about it and we don't set standards for it. You know, myself and my wife, we were talking about this, like we need to do a better job in our household of setting a standard for Lashon Hara. If someone wants to speak Lashon Hara to us, we need to be uh, aware, oh, this is Lashon Hara, cut it off. It's hard because what people may think, oh, what, you don't want me to talk to you? Like, what if I need to tell you something? Well, it's like, sorry, I'm not going to participate in acts of murder. Literally that's what it is and it's not it's not that i hate you i'm just letting you know this is how we're gonna roll so i still love you the same there's no love loss you know when a parent disciplines their child they don't end up loving their child less and not saying that we're disciplining each other like parents and children but just saying that when you have to hold up a standard when you have to set a boundary line sometimes they're firm and it hurts. It hurts you because you're like, I wish I didn't have to do this. And the person who gets the boundary set against them, they're like, oh, I can't believe you would do that to me, you know, or that hurt. Ow, you know, like, did you know you hurt me? Well, it's like, okay, right? Like all of these things, there should be no love loss because what we're doing is we're making ourselves set up for a healthy situation. You know, when the bet dean, like not talking our bed dean, but like in the temple, when we had the Sanhedrin, there were bate dinim, like multiple bait deans all around the temple precinct. They were hearing um, court cases day in and day out while the sacrificial service was going on. So we would start with the, the morning lamb all the way to the slika, the afternoon lamb. Between that time frame was the time to judge. So prayers, offerings, and things like that. The, the crazy thing about this is those judges are doing what they're doing out of the love and compassion for all of Israel, for the good of both parties, you know, for the person who's coming with the complaint and the person being complained against. The judges are fighting for both. And who do we learn about in Pirkei Avot? Aharon HaKohen, Aaron, the high priest, and the, the sages actually tell us, be among his disciples and read about Aharon and his great love for Yisrael. This is the epitome of how to set your boundaries, how to judge, you know, and, and be people who are healthy. You do it out of care and concern, not only for yourself, but for the other person. And through these things, they're hard, but we'll see the temple sooner than later 
when we act like this. And so far, you know, as a whole, we haven't been doing it and we have to. So the whole thing about the Musar and when I asked Shlomo about, I was like, do you remember the source that brought this down about what is the, the mitzvah of Torah study being Musar? And he goes, okay, found my source. <laughs> and he brings this down. This is from a, a compilation of things, but uh, I'm going to read just a few because it's a really long thing. Actually, you know, I'm going to post it in the chat. So you can take this and copy it and share it as you need to. There you go. So uh, is that the whole thing? I think it cut some stuff off. Let's see where to cut off. Moran Obadia Yosef. Okay, so we'll need to get that part. Stand by. So if you can, I would encourage everyone to take this and tab it, you know, as a note to self, to remember this when you're studying Torah, because this is just uh, very good information for us to be abiding by. Okay, I'm going to post the rest of it now because it chopped some of the information. And then if you need it uh, after class, you can also message me as well and I'll send it over. But this is uh, very, very pertinent uh, to what we should keep in our minds. Okay, so... Start with Yuma 72b. Woe to the Talmidei Chakamim, which is the Torah scholars, who study Torah and have no Yerat Shemaim. So they study Torah, but they don't have a fear of heaven. This is the epitome of, I don't believe in God. I don't think there is a God. I don't care about God. I don't care what he says. But let me read some of this. Humash, or let me read some of the Tehillim. Let me read some of this stuff. So you can literally read the word of God without even fearing it. So that's first up. Sorry, I got part of a... Okay, there we go. So that's a woe. And then it goes on to say, meaning even Talmudai Hakamin, Torah scholars, who study Torah all day, if they won't also engage in the study of Musar and Yerat Shemaim, they are susceptible to fall into the category of they don't have Yerat Shemaim. This is one of the big, big dangers. And I want to read this particular section for sure, because it's based off of Malachi 2.7. Because many of us listen to online classes we have many books of, you know, modern commentators on Torah and um, old school commentators on Torah. <laughs> May all of their memories be for a blessing, especially those who passed away. So the thing is, though, what is their fear of heaven like? Because that is the standard on who you should actually be considerate of their teaching. 
as we read here. Therefore, our hakamim, our, our sages, caution that it is forbidden to study Torah from a hakam, from a wise one or a, a teacher or a scholar who doesn't behave appropriately. As the pasuk states, pasuk is the way you say verse so or passage. Okay, so if you want to say like, What's the first pasuk of Parashat Kedoshim? And you go open up Kedoshim and start reading. That's your first pasuk. So as the pasuk states, for the lips of the Kohen should safeguard knowledge and people should seek teaching from his mouth for he is an agent of Hashem, master of legions, Malachi 2.7. You should note that this is the passage that likens a human being to the angel of Hashem. So the Kohen Hagadol is considered to be the angel of Hashem, like a Memtet figure. Obviously, the Mashiach fits this bill as well. So when you read the commentary on Malachi 2.7, you can understand how a human being would be called an angel. And these are the ones you should actually seek Torah from their lips. So when you talk about qualifiers for teachers of Torah in your life, there's sometimes there's not a way for you to really look into their lives and see, you know, what they're up to behind the scenes. You know, when cameras go off and classes in, you know, what is, how do they live? What do they do? You know, these kinds of things. So this is why one of the things that I make sure I do with people who are, you know, I consider my rabbi, like, for instance, Rabbi Trugman, I try to spend as much time around him as possible, even though it's not in physical, but it's virtual. So whether that be through emailing, whether that be through being a part of his post-class discussions, uh, as well as his class discussions, you know, because he offers those for Zoom and he has um, he has his Facebook page. He has uh, Instagram. He has Twitter. Rabbi is tweeting. This is crazy. <laughs> but yeah, he himself is tweeting. And right now he's tweeting uh, insights on the Omer. So if you're following him on that, you can obviously see how big of a blessing that is. But, you know, having, uh, what's it called? WhatsApp and Telegram, things like that. You can see the way he um, exchanges information, the way he answers questions. This is one of the big things that I do. I always pay attention to how he answers questions because that is a key indicator on the midot, the character traits of any teacher how do they answer questions? Do they always go, oh my gosh, if this person asks me one more question again, I will fight them through the screen. I will reach through the camera and just shake them. You know, like if people are doing that, you can see that in body language. Like, I can't believe you're asking this question again, you know? And sometimes for myself, you know, I, my, myself and my wife, we talk and I'm like, I posted this like a month ago. And she's just like, people have slept. They don't even know what they ate for breakfast. And I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, cause I, I go through sometimes and I'll be like, okay, I'm gonna put this big, big file together and then I'm gonna send it out to people. And then they can have it as a reference. It's like, you're probably going to get asked 20 more times. Are you ready for that? And I'm like, yeah, I should be ready for that. You know, like do to do. Cause Sometimes I be forgetting stuff and I'm like, oh, yeah, I have that on my calendar. Like I'm supposed to call so-and-so and I didn't even call them. And so I'm like, OK, so am I going to really put up those kind of standards for people when I'm not following them myself? 
Am I really going to put up those standards for people when I'm not following them myself? Do you hear this? <laughs> it's shameful, but my goodness is real. So what I've been learning, especially from Rabbi, is that my goodness, he does such an amazing job of being patient and all these kinds of things. I don't feel like I have a patience issue, but if I ever feel like I do, I'm already working on it ahead of time because look at the teacher I have, you know, people are, are taking up large amounts of time to say what's on their mind and he gives them their space. It could have everything to do with the topic or it could be completely off topic. But the thing is you actually learn from your students as a teacher, you know, and you're also given an opportunity to see how well you're applying Musar in your life as a teacher. Because all of those different things about how well you do with your humility, how well you do with patience, how well you do with organization, you know, listening, all these kinds of things, they happen in the, in the heat of the moment as a teacher, you know, and as a student in a class of other students. Because sometimes you may have a question, you're like, I really need to ask my question, can you hurry up? <laughs> you know, but it's like, but are you listening to your other students because you can actually learn something from listening to them? You know, and this is one of the biggest blessings of Zoom is that you're in classes with people. You don't even know what you're going to learn. You can be like, I, I didn't even know that was a thing, you know, and it's just kind of like the beauty of, you know, community, basically. And sometimes you, you know, these people, sometimes you don't, you know, but as I've been in Rabbi Chugman's classes, I've gotten to know many people who attend those classes. And it's really beautiful to over time, you know, those bonds that are created from just you being in the class every week, you know, and when things get posted and you're like, oh, I remember that or so-and-so goes, uh, you posted something a long time ago and you can send a message real quick to that person. Oh yeah, I got that. I remember it, you know, and boom. And you're able to just quickly help each other and, and take some of the alleviation off a of rabbi so he can do his thing, you know, cause it's, it's a really big job. So helping each other and all these kinds of things. So, uh, and my other teachers, Rabbi Pavanov and Rabbi Mollet, may they both live and be well, you know, like these are people who I actually engage and interact with as much as possible, even though we have distant relationships. So this is just a whole big section of encouragement to let everyone know when you're logging on to classes, when you're listening to droshes, you want to keep this in mind because these things come out in their teachings and it's very subtle, you know, and sometimes if you give these messages that you listen to, to an outside source and they'll go, oh, I don't know about this teacher. That teacher just is, they got a weird vibe or something like that. Take that into consideration, you know, and, and be mindful of it because sometimes we can be blindsided because we're so up close and personal. You know, so all of that to say, Musar and Yurata Shemaim is a very, very big deal. And, you know, as you can see here in the chat, it's a lot, it's a long insight, but man, bless you, Shlomo, for sending that over because that's way more than I would have ever thought, you know, as far as what the insight actually entails. But we really do have to pay attention to our teachers because there's influence there. You know, and sometimes without knowing it, we're thinking, oh, it's a source of Torah. Of course, it's kosher. You know, they're just giving out sources. And it's just like, well, how are they giving out sources? 
Okay, so next up we have here, how to cut one's hair is the next section in master plan. It goes on to say our awareness of the God-given nature of our bodies must extend even to the way we cut our hair. So this is something that I would have to say is very disconnected for me because number one, I don't go to a barber a lot. <laughs> and now that I know some of the halakha about how a barber shop should be run or anywhere that's cutting your hair, I'm just kind of like, wow, man, we don't do it like that <laughs> in society. Um, but then it just makes me think about, man, if I could just go to a Jewish barber, like what that would be like, that would be crazy. But most Jews cut their own hair, I think, anyway. At least the people I know, they cut their own hair. And I'm like, well, kudos to you. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I grew up in a household where my dad cut my hair every week. And sometimes it was great. And sometimes it was not great. And it traumatized me. So I'm like, I'm out. Unless you have a license, you're not touching my hair. <laughs> anyway, that's just me. I'm just saying it's like one of those things where it's like, well, okay. So. The other part I love about this sentence, it says that we have a God-given nature to our bodies. Sometimes we have the, the statement that says, well, I'm just human. You know, give me a break. The thing is, that's true. Don't ever doubt that. But also, don't doubt that Hashem gave you this body and it is a gift with whatever mobility and of uh, ability you have, you got to use it, you know, for, for whatever purposes possible. And, and this is one of the cool things about lining yourself up with Torah is that whatever your body is able to do, especially when it comes to the Torah, you bring about elevations to your body that have physical effects to it. You know, like we talked about, if you do something physically to your body, there's a spiritual counter effect or counter um, thing that happens. Something occurs. Same thing when you do something spiritual. If you do a spiritual thing with your body, it also affects the physical aspect of your body. Slika, there is a, a, a source. I don't have it with me. And it's Kabbalah and Hasidu teach that there are. 248 positive commandments that correspond to the 248 uh, organs and limbs of the body. And then you have 365 negative commandments, which correspond to the sinews of the body, which means 248 plus 365, 613. So you put it all together, it becomes like not only a Torah, but it makes up what com composes a human body. And the thing is, is that we have a spiritual body so that when we need healing or if we get sick, all of these mitzvot have their counter effect to all of these things. This is why when we sin, it brings about sickness and death on so many different levels. And normally it's over time that these things build up and then they have a physical expression or they can be immediate depending on, you know, the severity of things. But just as it is with the um, dehabilitation of the body through sin, you can also have a rehabilitation on so many levels because of the mitzvot. So when you look at your spiritual body, it, 
it really corresponds to your physical body. And so this is one of the cool things about the more you are including Torah in your life, the more mature you're becoming and things like that. Uh, the way Shaul put it, that we're decaying on our outer man, but our inner man is becoming more and more alive every day. He, he, he spoke this to the Corinthians. And so Kabbalah and Hasidu teaches this when it breaks down the human body into the 248 and the 365. So just because you're doing mitzvot doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be healthy all the time. And just because you're sinning doesn't mean that you're also going to be sick all the time. There are so many different ways. And how do we know this? Have you read these books? The Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Many chapters in there about the effects of sin, judgment, atonement, confession, repentance. All of these things have like all of these intricate ways of mitigating the effects of sins and also the effects of actually observing the mitzvot. So it's not just an all or nothing kind of thing. We don't get this immediate return. So uh, so just to balance out what I just mentioned about the spiritual body and all of the effects from the physical to the spiritual and vice versa, we should also take into account this information. It's very complex. And this is also another reason why we can't go around looking at people going, oh, they're a sinner. They're they're holy. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint, you know, like kadosh, not kadosh. You know, we can't do that. Won't be able to tell. As we also know from experiences, some of the most holy people in the world are like the most injured people in the world or the most poverty stricken people in the world. You're like, how can this be? They love Hashem so much. Why? And we just don't know why. And the same thing on the other end of the spectrum. I, I, I can't believe that person is getting away with it. You know, like King David in the Psalms, like all the time talking about this, right? You know, and we're just like, dude, the wicked are just totally on top of the world. And then we read the beautiful commentary that, you know, those who are first shall be last and the last shall be first. <laughs> this world, there are people on top. And the next world, those people who are on top are on the bottom. And then you're just kind of like, well, okay, well, I guess I'll take a chill pill. <laughs> anyway, you know, we all have our, our um, perspectives and things we have to work out on that. But these are, it's like a huge system, you know. Uh, the next thing is, hey, Shalom, Shira, welcome. Welcome to everyone who's on here, but I'm just seeing all the Shaloms coming in. So Shalom, everyone. <clears throat> All right, so how we cut our hair. So I'm going to skip down to the next paragraph. When cutting the hair of our head, we are not to remove the sideburns, which would level off the hairline around the scalp. Okay, so kind of in this area, there are diagrams that are actually available that actually show what part of the hair you want to make sure you don't like completely razor and cut off and like like zap it and be like never grow back again so this is why when you look at the the payout that some jews wear this is why that's kind of overdone to like beautify it it's like we're not only gonna not remove it but we're also gonna accentuate it you know with modesty of course and there are sometimes you see rabbis and payout are all the way down you're just like dude how you don't step on those things right but it's just like 
there are many ways that people look at it and view it and it's totally fine but the Torah just says try not to remove that area of your hair it says this would give the Jew a tonsured look such as affected by pagan priests in the past and some other Gentile priests still at the present day. So I want to do something very random because of the power of technology and Google. I want to look up what a tonsured look is and see if we can. Wow. Oh, boy. Debating on if I should show this. Well. Let's find a very, uh, here we go. Let's do it this way. Because we don't want to criminalize and uh, point fingers. But open image and a new tab. This is kind of interesting, but this is a picture of the tonsured look that the Torah is talking about. Uh, that goes for men and women. I don't know how women could pull this off, but uh, there you go. <laughs> That's considered to be a tonsured look. Torah says, in your best availability, and your best ability, try not to do that. Okay, so going to stop sharing now just do a little sneak peek but um yeah so as you can see you can open up google and be like tor what you talking about and google's like this is what tor is talking about <laughs> so technology gotta love it so tor says okay let's refrain from that it says that this was a this was done by pagan priests so, you know, the other thing about the mixing uh, milk and, and dairy, you know, or mixing meat and dairy, this was some of the practices that the nations would do that are in the land of Israel before we got back from Israel. So it's like, don't do that, you know, and people used to do that before you got here. And that was not cool. Same thing with this. Like there's other uh, civilizations that do this kind of thing. And they mutilate their flesh for the and uh, remembrance of the dead, you know. So that's taking your mourning to an extreme level. So we're not going to be doing that. So, yeah. So Torah is teaching us balance on so many different levels. Oh, is the payout for women? Uh, women would naturally have payout, especially if you have long hair. But the other part to remember about payout is that if you can grab that corner of your hair and move it back and forth, that's also halakhically acceptable. So even if you don't have long hair as a woman, you technically have payout. So uh, as far as, wow, Devorah, that's interesting. Good night. Okay. But yeah, so for women, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen women wearing like the actual curled out payout or, or braided out like that. But you know, women cover their hair or in some kind of way anyway, and orthodoxy. So don't really know how that really plays out across the board. But yes, just going off of what uh, this corner of the hair we're talking about is if you have hair, you are observing that. So and then being mindful of people who may have hair loss or, you know, or there's some kind of uh, medical thing there going on with not being able to have hair, you know, that's also taken into consideration. So 
just remember those things. If you remember the, the horrible tragedy of the Holocaust, a lot of us as Jews have gotten marked up, you know, bodies that are tattoos and we should not have tattoos. So, you know, again, there's balance on all the different spectrums that we have to look at. So we can't just make it a, a this or not, you know, kind of scenario, you know, and again, our goal is to elevate our bodies, not to bring them down or bring other people's bodies down. This is why when we look at the, the forbidden relations that are in this Torah portion as well, which we actually read on Yom Kippur during the Menka service, which is like, why are we doing this right now? <laughs> you know, but it's just like, yeah, you really want to be holy? You really want to be clean before Hashem? How are you treating your relationships in your life? Because that's a, that's a big indicator of the level of holiness in which you walk. How well do you treat other people? Now, when we read about the forbidden relationships, it's like to the ultimate end of that spectrum because it's like actual sexual relationships, you know, forbidden things you should not be doing with other people that are not your wife or your husband. You know, it's like, but that getting that far is an indicator of all of the fences and boundaries that have been breached to get there. So because it's in the Torah, so uh, a son sleeping with his father's sister, this is your aunt, you should not uncover the nakedness of her flesh. In order for that to actually occur, they got to be secluded. The son in his mind has to be so in a state of mind of, you know, I don't care what your relationship is to me. I'm going to, you know, do what I need to do. Um, I'm not going to seek out a hoopah to get married. You know, I'm not going to give you a ketubah. All these different uh, things that are steps in order for a man and a woman to actually cohabitate. There's plenty of steps that have to be taken. You don't just go out and cohabitate, right? Bezard Hashem, you don't, even though. I guess society today thinks that's a thing to do, but the Torah already shows us like, if you're going to get to that level, if you really study it out, what have you already violated in order to get there? And because you've gone so far, it's like a last effort of the Torah saying, even if you have violated mitzvah after mitzvah and just put yourself in a downward spiral of sin, stop here. Because if you go past this point, it's almost like it's a point of no return. Even though we know it makes repentance harder, you still can return. But my goodness, it's better for you to repent sooner than later because you may not ever repent after that. Right. So you get to this end. The Torah is like, please, you've gone so far away. Please stop. And this is about holiness, which, you know, when you think about the implications of that, the Torah is going like, Please take care of how you treat other people so that you don't end up getting this far gone. That's another way to look at the forbidden relationships part of this Torah portion. So just like we went that far with, you know, uh, human to human interaction, same thing with what we're actually doing to ourselves, namely in the aspect of cutting our hair. Cut your hair if it's get too long. If it's too short, let it grow out, you know, but there's a way in which you do that. So that's that point. And then it goes on to say the Torah wants us to be a kingdom of priests. See, this is why master plan just blows my mind because, you know, I, I 
I feel like this is such a popular verse. You are to be a holy people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, you're kings and priests. Like that's like a big popular statement with the word of a God, right? But the thing is how that applies is on these crazy levels. And one of them is how you groom yourself. And again, we're reading in a section of Halakha about how to cut your hair. And it's like, because you're a kingdom of priests, because <laughs> you're a Malku Kohanim, because you're kings and priests, this is how you do your hair. Okay. <laughs> so it says, but not to ape the appearance of that other type of priest. Mm. The priestly function of the Jewish nation lies just in showing how ordinary life can be sanctified. So the priestly function, the, the way to look at it, having a priestly mentality and attitude is to look at how ordinary life can be sanctified. So if you want to think like a priest, think about how you live your life every day and how to bring sanctification to that. Sanctification to your morning routine, sanctification to your driving, to your shopping, you know, all these other things that we do in our daily activity. How do we bring a level of sanctity to them? My Havruta, may he live and be well, shared this crazy experience because he used to be in the corporate world and higher ladders of uh, just, you know, upper levels of management and stuff like that. He didn't go all the way to the top, but he was just like, I'm going to stop at a level because it just gets out of hand for what he was doing. But he said that uh, he would always get questioned by this one particular person on his job. And they were like, you know, why do you think you're all better and doing all this stuff? And he said, can I just ask you one question? He goes, what is holy and sanctified in your life? Is there anything in your life that's holy and sanctified? Like, do you set a, a boundary to anything? Is there anything that's set apart, that's separated out as something that you treat with reverence and respect, as opposed to just like this blanket, this is how I live my life, I do what I want. And he said that stopped the person. And they were like, I've never thought of that before. And I totally understand you now. As I was hearing this story being reiterated, I was just blown away because I was just like, wow, am I thankful for being an observant Jew? Because being observant automatically sets us up like that. Everything else that we're doing is the icing on the cake, like these little tools of refinement, all the intricate things that we're doing to, to better and make our observance more vibrant. It's just so beautiful to think about that we have things that are set apart and sanctified in our life. And that is what being a priest is. You make distinctions. We learned this all the way back in Parsha Shmini, right? The thing is, we've been on this really cool progression. If you kind of look at it, Parsha Shmini, Tazria Medzora, Achare Mot, Kedoshim. And then we get to like the Holy Grail of priest laws. Parsha and more. And it's like, here's all the things that the priests are on the hook for. And it's like, well, I'm not a priest. I'm not a Levite. So I guess I don't need to learn it. Torah goes, eh, nope. You do need to learn it because guess what? You are likened to a priest and a Levite. 
So when you think about all these things, it's like, it's really cool how we're all set up like that. So what page am I on? I'm on page 80, trying to finish page 80 in master plan. Great guess. Good job. <laughs> you know me, you always rabbit trailing. Okay, but I'm going to stop now. Go back to page 80. I'm in the middle of the bottom paragraph. So it says the significance of the sideburns. This is going to be interesting. Never thought of this before. They mark the division between the frontal lobe of the brain, which is concerned mainly with the abstract. So abstract thinking in the front. Sideburn comes in. Okay, here's where abstract ends. <laughs> and decision making. And the rest of the brain, which is concerned with other functions, they mark off and emphasize the specifically human factors of intellect and morality and their reten retention teaches that these human elements are to prevail in our lives. So in other words, the sideburns come in as a physical indicator to make a distinction between your intellectual godly self versus your animalistic and not so godly self. Like your more of your animal baser uh, instincts. Your sideburns do that. We were designed with a physical map on our bodies that tell us, hey, just so you should know, this is connected, right? Your, your frontal lobe and your back lobe, your, your back part of your brain, like you need all of that. And it has to be in balance. And just so you know, here's an indicator that says, make sure that you're not allowing your animal drives to take over. Because we can. We know the effects of, oh, yeah, I don't care about Torah. I don't care about mitzvot. I don't care about observance. I'll just do me. I'll just do what I want to do. I'll live my life how I want to live. We see what happens with that. Truth becomes like, where is it? What is truth? I don't even know what truth is. I don't. I haven't talked to truth lately, you know, like these kinds of things. So we have sideburns on our bodies that tell us, hey, keep it all in check. And it's just like if you are a person who shaves off those things of your of your hair, it's like, wow. OK. So <clears throat> it goes on to say the this hair at the temples graces the countenance of every human child the emblem of its human calling. This may go some way to explain the importance attached to the complete retention of these sideburns in certain Jewish circles, although the Torah forbids only their complete removal. So we don't want to completely remove it. And again, like we mentioned before, there are some, some uh, the way they put it, Jewish circles that extenuate this. So... So the next part says, in the adult human male, the lower part of the face is covered by the beard. This hair discreetly veils the jaws and chin devoted primarily to eating and mastication. Eating and enjoyment are fine, but they should be treated with discretion and not allowed to dominate our lives. So 
And we have this whole, again, physical picture here of, okay, yeah, you need to eat, you need to chew your food and all this kind of stuff, but bring some balance to it. Keep it in check. This is why we have beards. <laughs> One of the many reasons why. There's um, the beard of Aharon Midrash about the oil that was poured down and the two beads that were left, you know, after he was consecrated, which is a whole beautiful thing. There's the Kabbalistic uh, teaching about the beard of Hashem and the different attributes that are connected to that and all these kind of stuff or all these kinds of insights, not stuff. It's like, <laughs> it's deep. It's just kind of like, that's a lot of it's over my head, which is funny because beard over your head. Uh, okay. Being silly. All right. So anyway, master plan brings it all the way down to our level. <laughs> Just like before you get all in the sewed and, and Kabbalistic, bring it down to Prashat. Keep it simple. <laughs> so the Torah's command is even more discreet. It does not say the beard must be retained. Check this out, because a lot of Jews don't have beards. I don't know if anyone's paid attention to that. Some teachers you watch, it's like, where's their beard? You know, you're all like looking at the screen, stopping the video, zooming in. I don't see any hair. Why? <laughs> so it says... <laughs> It says merely that it must not be destroyed, i.e. shaven off level with the skin by a razor. In other words, don't try to make it look like hair doesn't grow here. So it says it may be removed by scissors or an electric shaver acting like scissors, i.e. leaving a small fraction of the hair above the skin. This subtle hint imprinted on our subconscious every time we shave suffices for the Torah's purpose. This idea may explain why in Jewish tradition, the beard is considered an adornment in accord with its biological function. Because there's other things that if you have a beard, it's very beneficial for, you know, like namely, you don't get a lot of bumps and stuff like that. It helps with all the uh, elemental conditions that exist in environment sometimes, having a beard protects your face. But the cool thing I love about this is that, you know, even when you cut it, the thing is you're not supposed to like pretend like it doesn't exist. There's care in the proper way in which you're to trim it, shave it, specific tools you have to use. And then I was thinking about the fact that, you know, just like with the payout, just make sure you don't remove it. You can make it grow as long as you want. Same thing with the beard. Make sure you don't just destroy the fact that there's a beard that should be on your face. But you can grow it as long as you want to. So this is why some, some people have super long beards. I don't get to be one of those people because my beard doesn't do that. So I'm kind of like, am I jealous? Am I not? Well, Hashem created me this way. So Burgesham, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just have to be uh, content with what you have, right? So, yeah, so I'm just like, cool. My bros can have long beards all day. And I'd be like, yeah, do your thing, man. <laughs> so, but yeah, so it's just really cool how when you look at when the Torah gives us a mitzvah, just from looking at peyote and beards alone, you can kind of see the spectrums and the balances that you can actually take the mitzvah to or leave them at. You know, so it's just a matter of really understanding each mitzvah. This is why you shouldn't rush into doing the mitzvah, because there's a lot of education to each commandment. Like you just can't 
run out and do a commandment and be like, yeah, I'm the king of this commandment. It's like, well, are you really? What's the depths of that? You know, because we're reading about not shaving your hair. Did we know all this was included in that? And again, this is master plan. This is just to open the door and step into the front room. Hey, how you doing? Like, that's what this book does with the halakha. So you could imagine what more is there. Should I say Shulkan Aruk the Kitzer? Because that's the only one in English. <laughs> Start looking at that one with that mitzvah. It's just going to be page after page. You're going to be like, okay, this is a hairy situation. Had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> okay, so that is the end of chapter 20. Chapter 21 will be all about words, words, words. What you're doing with your words page 82 so if you want to read ahead of the class you're more than welcome to and um it's funny because parshat and more i always kind of look at how it uh has a, a play on words with uh the word for to say in hebrew which is uh um omer or amar so more and amar all have to do with saying and, and words and speech and that's coming up next week. So Bezra Hashem, we'll get to read that. And we will now switch and recite Tehillim for Yom Hazikaron. So I want to pull up um, two of the customary Tehillim, which is Tehillim 9, Psalm 9, and Psalm 144. So we'll recite these. I'm going to be using Sfaria.org for that. So if you have your Tehillim, if any insights come out uh, as you're reading, and yes, Bezrat Hashem will count the Omer. If you see any insights, because I know some of you have the big green book, as we lovingly call it, the Kahoot publication Tehillim. Uh, some of you have the Art Scroll Masora series uh, and things like that. So if you see any uh, insights that stick out to you as we're reading, uh, please raise your hand or throw them in the chat or, uh, you know, I'll ask, you know, after we read each Tehillim. Uh, just in case there's something there that's pertinent to what we would like to um, share. So feel free to do that as we're reading. So HaKadosh Baruchu, in honor of the fallen among the Israeli armed forces, we would like to join in with the rest of our brothers and sisters in reciting particularly Psalm 9 and Psalm 144. For the leader, Almut Labin, a psalm of David, I will praise you, Adonai, with all my heart. I will tell all your wonders. I will rejoice and exult in you, singing a hymn to your name, O Most High. When my enemies retreat, they stumble to their doom at your presence. You uphold my right and, cl and claim, enthroned as righteous judge. You blast the nations, you destroy the wicked. You blot out their name forever. The enemy is no more. Ruins everlasting. You have torn down their cities. Their very names are lost. But Adonai abides forever. He has set up his throne for judgment. It is he who judges the world with righteousness, rules the peoples with equity. Adonai is a haven for the oppressed, a haven in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you do not abandon those who turn to you, Adonai. Sing a hymn to Adonai, who reigns in Zion. 
declare his deeds among the peoples, for he does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. He who requites bloodshed is mindful of them. Have mercy on me, Adonai. See my affliction at the hands of my foes. You who lift me from the gates of death, so that in the gates of fair Zion, I might tell all your praise. I might exult in your deliverance. The nations sink in the pit they have made. Their own foot is caught in the net they have hidden. Adonai has made himself known. He works judgment. The wicked man is snared by his own devices. Hagayon Selah. The wicked, or let the wicked be in Sheol, all the nations who ignore God. Not always shall the needy be ignored, nor the hope of the afflicted forever lost. Rise, O Adonai, let not men have power. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike fear into them, O Adonai. Let the nations know they are only men. Selah. And Psalm 144. <clears throat> of David, blessed is Adonai, my rock, who trains my hands for battle, my fingers for warfare, my faithful one, my fortress, my haven and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take shelter, who makes peoples subject to me. O Adonai, what is man that you should care about him? Mortal man that you should think of him. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. O Adonai, bend your sky and come down. Touch the mountains and they will smoke. Make lightning flash and scatter them. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach your hand down from on high. Rescue me. Save me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose oaths are false. O oh God, I will sing you a new song, sing a hymn to you with a ten-string harp, to you who give victory to kings, who rescue his who rescues his servant David from the deadly sword. Rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouth speaks lies, or whose mouths speak lies, and whose oaths are false. For our sons are like saplings, well tended in their youth. Our daughters are like cornerstones, trimmed to give shape to a, a palace. Our storehouses are full, supplying produce of all kinds. Our flocks number thousands, even myriads in our fields. Our cattle are where, well cared for, there is no breaching and no sortie and no wailing in our streets. Happy the people who have it so. Happy the people whose God is Adonai. Kenya Hiratzon. May the memory of the fallen be for a blessing. And may Hashem bring about the resurrection of the dead, that loved ones may be rejoined together in the new Yerushalayim with the third temple and the arrival of the Mashiach. Can you hear what's on? All right. So let's count the Omer. Go to today's Omer count. I'll put this on the screen for us.
right. Bezrat Hashem, everyone can see. Gonna go ahead and stand. I don't have the ability to raise my camera up, so <laughs> I'll do it this way. All right. <clears throat> Okay, here we go. Barukata Adonai, Eloheinu Melakaolam, Asher Kidshanu, Bimitswatah Betibanu, Al Sifirata Omer. Today is 17 days, which is two weeks and three days of the Omer. Oh, this is wrong. Sleek eye, everyone. Want to make sure I got the right information here. Oh, this is just great. <laughs> the location I'm in is uh, giving me all sorts of. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to start over now. I have to reset my location. All right. Barukata Adonai, Eloheinu Melakaulam, Asher Kishanu Bimitsutah Vetsibanu, Al Sefirata Omer. Today is 18 days, which is two weeks and four days of the Omer. May the merciful one restore unto us the service of the Beit HaMikdash to its place speedily in our days. Amen, Selah, Mashiach, now. For the choir master, a song with instrumental music, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his countenance shine upon us forever, that your way be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. The nations will extol you, O God. All the nations will extol you. The nations will rejoice and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples justly and guide the nations on earth forever. The peoples will extol you, O God. All the peoples will extol you. For the earth will have yielded its produce, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us and all from the farthest corners of the earth shall fear him. We implore you by the great power of your right hand, release the captive, accept the prayer of your people, strengthen us, purify us, awesome one, mighty one, we beseech you, guard as the apple of the eye, those who seek your oneness. Bless them, cleanse them, bestow upon them forever your merciful righteousness. Powerful Holy One in your abounding goodness, guide your congregation. Only an exalted one, turn to your people who are mindful of your holiness. Accept our supplication and hear our cry. You who knows secret thoughts, blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. Master of the universe, you have commanded us through Moshe, your servant, to count Sefirat Omer in order to purify us from our evil and uncleanliness. As you have written in your Torah, you shall count for yourselves from the day following the day of rest, from the day on which you bring the Omer as a wave offering. The counting shall be for seven full weeks. Until the day following the seventh week shall you count 50 days, so that the souls of your people, Yisrael, may be cleansed from their defilement. Therefore, may it be your will out on our God and the God of our forefathers, that in the merit of the Sefirah Ta'omer, which we counted today, that the blemish we've caused in the Sefirah of Netzach Shev Teferit be rectified, and may I be purified and sanctified with supernal holiness. 
may abundant bounty thereby be bestowed upon all the worlds. May it rectify our nefesh, ruach, and neshama from every baseness and defect. And may it purify and sanctify us with your supernal holiness. Amen. Selah. All right. So, Rukashim, make sure if you're counting the Omer, update your location so you don't be praying the wrong day if you're in a different zip code. <laughs> All right. So, any insights or questions um, based off of anything we talked about so far tonight? Or did anyone read any commentary while we were reading the Tehillim? of Psalm 9 or Psalm 144. And add to the list, if you have the Omer meditation of the day that you would like to share, please feel free to do so. If not, I shall carry on. We're good. So I'm going to go ahead and go to volume one of the handbook. This is the yellow one. Volume two is the pink one. You can also note by the number of stars at the bottom in case you ever get lost. Okay, so for this uh, particular source, I have actually recorded the first four chapters, believe it or not. <laughs> of classes. So they were done on, what's that thing called again? Oh, um, trying to think of it. It's another web platform. I can't remember, it's escaping my brain right now, but there's another web platform we were on before YouTube. <clears throat> and I put all the classes on the playlist there. Why is it escaping my brain? What's the name of the thing? Vimeo. Vimeo. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. Got to call a friend, man. My goodness. Okay. But yes, on Vimeo.com, if there are Magan Yashani videos still left on there, there's a whole class on the Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1. So uh, I went over the first four chapters. We should be transferring those and uploading those soon to this channel. So we'll create a playlist for them, and then we'll notify everyone when they're ready. So with that being said, I'm actually going to pick up where I left off, which was a long time ago, but chapter five. <clears throat> so chapter five is on page 59 in the handbook, and we'll close out our class with the last 30 minutes going through this chapter. Fitting, this chapter is known as the commandments. <laughs> yes, Bezrat Hashem, may Hashem supply these books for you. These are, can't tell you enough. If you got this right here in your life, my goodness, you're setting yourself up for so much success. And furthermore, you remember how we were talking about the different Torah lectures and classes that you could attend and different sources you can read out there? Having these sources brings you stability and anchors. Because sometimes you'll hear something and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm failing as a Jew. <laughs> then you read about it in the handbook and you're like, okay, I, okay, that was kind of exaggerated, a little bit of hyperbole, bring it back. You know, 
that's happened to me a lot. You know, this is why I have been on the not take it literally train because that's what these books have taught me. Like, I'm just kind of like, okay, I've been way out of proportion. So just to encourage everyone, when you're in these books, it's detailed, it's nuts and bolts of things, but it's very fundamental. Like you need to have these things. So, so we're gonna take time to do it. And since you have master plan, that's your first step anyway. That's like stepping on the platform and jumping to get the spring activated. And then when you get in the air, that's your handbooks. <laughs> okay, so Psalm of today is Psalm 82. We ask Hashem to judge the earth. How about that? Wow. Okay, so here we go. Page 59, talking about the commandments. It says, the means through which Israel gains the good for which God created the universe are the commandments. So if you've read the previous chapters or been a part of the previous videos, it talked about Hashem's uh, ultimate benefit to mankind being goodness. And what goodness is, how to attain it, is the mitzvot. So we want to make sure that we understand the mitzvot are connections to good. It's not because we're commanded to do them, it's not per se because if we don't do them, it's horrible for us, but we need to understand the conduit of bringing goodness and beneficence into our life and into the world. It's through the mitzvot. This is really why you can't look in Matthew through Revelation or any of the other uh, possible canonized uh, candidates for the New Testament. You won't really see in there, do the commandments. Uh, Make sure that you, you know, go through the Torah portions and all these kinds of things, like because the yoke of Hashem is not forced. It's never forced. Anyone who wants to come to Hashem, it's all about coming to him. You know, even the Mashiach speaks this way when he says, come to me, you know, you who are burdened, heavy laden, you know, take my yoke upon you. He says, take my yoke upon you. He didn't say, here, I throw my yoke at you, right? So, when we look at the mitzvot, when we look at being Torah observant, yes, it's good for us to do these things. And the Torah has given us all the commandments. We hear Hashem saying, you know, he commands us to do such and such, right? But the very practical way to look at it, if you are married, if you are a parent or a child, you know, those dynamic relationships, right? What someone else outside of your family and your household tells you is not relevant to you. In other words, if someone else's spouse is like, oh, you're so cute, I love you very much, and they're trying to give you gifts, that's not the same as when your spouse tells you you're cute, I love you very much, and they try to give you gifts. It comes from a completely different place. A parent who's commanding their child to do something, well, back in the day, anyway, a village used to raise children, which is crazy. I remember getting disciplined before I got home, disciplined on the way home, and then disciplined when I got home by mom first and then dad. It was just like, okay, can I get a break? No, you shouldn't have done this. You know, like that used to be the structure. But nowadays it's kind of like you need to take care of your household and all this kind of stuff, all the dynamics, right? But all of that to say that your, your parent-child relationship is between the, you you know, it's not you and someone else's. So when it comes down to it, 
the standards and things that are set for the household, your children have to abide by those. You don't let your child come home and go, well, at so-and-so's house, they stay up all night. So, and they're only seven. And it's like, well, at this household, I'm your parent. I'm not going to allow you to stay up all night. <laughs> they can do that if they want, but we're not going to do that. So same thing with the Torah and the mitzvot. We should understand that Hashem has set the standard for Yisrael. He didn't go out and just say, everybody do this. You know, everyone has the opportunity and the accessibility to do so. And we read in the Midrashim about Hashem going around to different nations going, will you accept the Torah? Will you accept it? Even that, right? Because even then Hashem didn't ever throw the Torah at Ishmael or Esau. He said, you know, will you accept it? And then they ask, what's in it? He tells them one thing and they're like, oh, no, we can't do it. After that, he was just like, okay. You know, like ultimate gentleman. He didn't go, I'm sorry, you don't, you don't like what I got, but you're going to get this. Like he didn't do it that way. So same thing we should understand about the mitzvot. Next thing it says, if Adam would have kept his one commandment, Adam had one job. <laughs> if he would have done that, then he would have immediately attained this goal. Since he did not, numerous commandments are required. So, Let's go to Shaul real quick. I got to look this one up because I think this is a really good thing to break down about why the Torah was added. So Galatians 3.19. We have commentary on Galatians 3.19. Let's check it out. Oh, oh, right over there. Okay, go back. Oops, that down. Trying to see. There has been actually, as we've talked about before, there hasn't been any uh, commentary on the Basora or the letters. And apparently, shouts out to Letter of Jacob, Ben Burton, may he live and be well. He's actually been broadcasting. There's actually commentary out there. And I'm like, what? <laughs> So, one of them, does it have Galatians? I don't know. About to find out real fast. It does. How about that? So I find it. I'm going to put it on the screen. So, we're going to look at Galatians 3.19 in light of what we just read from the handbook. So as you can already see, I'm not uh, Devorah. Come on. That is so sad. <laughs> is there ain't no commentary on that. <laughs> no. How are you not going to have commentary on Galatians 3.19? Seriously. I'm at 316, 317, 318, 319. Boom. Okay, there's something here. I'm looking at the one that is. This is the gray book. What is that one called? There's two. There's a uh, Soloveitchik 
book. Hang on. So there's the Bible, the Talmud, and the New Testament by Eliyahu uh, so, uh, Elijah Soloveitchik. <clears throat> That's one. Then the other one is by uh, Strzok and or Strack and Billerbeck. So that's the one I'm using right now, the Strack and Billerbeck. That's a three volume set, I think. So I'm gonna go ahead and put this one up here. Share my screen. Oh, so you can see what it looks like. I have the Kindle version, working on getting the paper version, the hardback copies. But let's read 319. Galatians 319 says, then why the Torah? It was added because of wrongdoings until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. It was arranged through angels by the hand of an intermediary. Now, would you check that out? Because we just read Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1, that if Adam would have kept one commandment, then he would have immediately attained this goal. But since he did not, numerous commandments are required. In other words, we wouldn't have gotten the 613 if we would have just kept the one. Looking over here, why was the Torah added? Because of wrongdoings. Because we failed at the one thing that Hashem asked us to do. So, enacted by angels is what they pick up on. And it says, the presence of angels at the giving of the law is an ancient Jewish traditional material. This idea is already mentioned in a tradition that is supposed to have been brought from Babylon. See Pasikta Rabbatai 21 and the following number six and is alluded to in, oh my gosh, <laughs> don't know what that means, but Deuteronomy 32 or 33, two as well. We'll see in number two, opinions diverge concerning the purpose of the angels at the giving of the law. It is... Once stated generally in Pasikta Rabbatai 21, 103b, and it says, why did the angels come down at the giving of the law? Rabbi Hia ben Rabbah said to honor the Torah. So if you read in Parsha Yitro about Hashem coming with his myriad, coming with his uh, vanguard of angels, that's what they're talking about here. Because it's likened to a groom coming to his bride, you know, and the groom comes with his groomsmen to get his bride. So then it says, <clears throat> Rabbi Hiya ben Yossi said to honor Yisrael. So the following decisions come into consideration more precisely. Okay, so I'm going to stop for a minute because I saw a hand raised. Go for it. I'm a, I'm a little lost. You read something before you were reading the stuff on the screen. Mm -hmm. Is that a question that someone posed? 
like why the title was added or was it I I I missed that. Oh no, it's just a thought that came to my mind because at, when I was reading in the handbook that we wouldn't have had the numerous commandments required of us, I immediately thought of something I read from Shaul where he said that the Torah was added because of transgressions. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Now, yeah, now you're reading this other thing that you're sharing. Kind yeah, of so in other words, uh, why he said that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I was confused. So thank you for explaining. Now I can follow what you, where you're going, sort of. <laughs> okay, cool. Rukishan. Yeah, I'm just trying to connect more dots to the letters, you know, because if you have been a person, you know, that grew up in the church or, you know, you've read the Bible like the New Testament and have felt maybe it doesn't connect to Torah or maybe you're like, OK, how does this line up with Torah? Maybe you've had thoughts or particular theologies that are in your mind now and you're just like, where does that fit? Does that even fit? Is it wrong? Is it right? You know, so I'm trying to be mindful of that uh, just in general. So this is why sometimes as I'm reading, I, I really stop and go, this sounds a lot like or this really is giving more uh, explanation to why Shaul or Peter or uh, any of the other apostles and uh, disciples, why they shared the, what they shared, because it's like, here it is right here. We're reading it. So and. So this was just kind of one of those points where it was just kind of like, okay, so you mean to tell me what you wouldn't have gotten this whole big picture, the giving of the Torah, had we kept that one commandment? And it's crazy because it's just kind of like, so now when you look at, there was a, a commentary that the Torah was added because we sinned. But we know that the Torah is not just because we are sinners. The Torah really is out of love because Hashem is like, I want you to have all the tools possible for you to be in a loving relationship with me. So this is not just because, oh, you were wrong. So now you have to do these laws. It's like, no, because you sinned, there's now all these hurdles that we've created for ourselves. We don't know a lot of them. Torah makes us aware of things that break our connections with God. So, you know, those kinds of things. So, yes, this kind of stuff gets people to argue and not come to an agreement for stuff that may take us away from Hashem and closer. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's a, a very big part of it. There's people who argue a lot about what the texts say. And the thing is, it's totally fine to argue. But at the end of the day, can you really bring it back to the sages? Because when you look at the sages themselves, we just read the different opinions in the one comment we read. So it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, there will be difference of opinions and that's fine. But with all the difference opinions, it should be bringing out more information that you can actually glean and learn from. For instance, why did Hashem show up with so many angels at the giving of the Torah? Why did the Torah come through the hand of an intermediary? Who is the intermediary it came through? So we read earlier in this book and a uh, handbook, well, not tonight anyway, but that Yisrael is not um, required to have an intermediary with Hashem. So if we're not allowed to have an intermediary, 
then what's up with Moshe Rabbeinu? What's up with Aharon? What's up with King David? What's up with Mashiach? Well, when we look at the intermediary aspect in the case of Moshe, why was he an interme intermediary? Because we said, that's enough. You go talk to Hashem. We can't handle this. So the only reason we had an intermediary at the giving of the Torah is because we said we can't handle it. We need somebody to step in. So another further point to what Shaul wrote about that the Torah was given through the hand of an intermediary. We already see that from the commentary in the Torah portions. So, you know, <clears throat> then, you know, Baruch Hashem, Devorah, that's prayerfully what we're doing is filling in blanks, you know, like connect dots, you know, and things like that. So again, back to the angels, when we said we will do and we will hear what happened, the Torah tells us that we were crowned with two crowns, one for we will do and one for we will hear. And it took a lot of angels to put those crowns on us. So another reason why many angels came with Hashem at the giving of the Torah was to crown us, not just accompany him. So, I mean, you can just quickly see there's multiple reasons why there were heavenly hosts. Okay, so prayerfully this works here. Oh, oh, we got a drop. Is this a drop? King David is even Malkut, which if you look at the Sefirot, the 10 uh, emanations of Hashem, it says, uh, or there's all the different things. We're counting some of them during the Omer, the lower seven. Malkut is known as kingdom or sovereignty. And it says this, and uh, Shira is bringing this down, saying that this corresponds to King David. And it says, a person who represents the unification between heaven and earth. So when you look at the, the uh, sphera of Malkut, that connects the upper worlds with the lower worlds. So King David himself was able to unite the heavens and the earth. And this is another reason why the king of Israel is so important is because he represents the, the pinnacle and the epitome of what we as a Jewish nation should be. People who bridge that gap of the heavens and the earth. Are those the crowns that, we, that will be cast down in Revelation? Yes, and also no. Because the we will do and we will hear are just for that. If you read later in the letters of Shaul, there's a crown of life, crown of victory, you know, all the different things for overcoming. So those are other crowns. Then um, don't really know how far I can go into it, but like as far as what's coming to my mind right now, which I would just encourage you that seek that out because I think there's a lot more to it. Remember how we read in Parsha Teruma that there is a crown of the priest, there's a crown for the king, and then there's a crown for the Torah, for those who study Torah, which correspond to the ark, the golden altar, and the showbread table. Each of those particular items in the temple and the Mishkan have crowns, and they represent the crown of priesthood, the crown of the kingship, and the crown of those who study Torah. And it says that those who study Torah 
take all the crowns because all the crowns of king and priest are found in the crown of Torah, which represents the ark, which the sages say this is why it's used in plural terms. They shall make the ark as opposed to Bezalel made the menorah or not the menorah, but he made the items of the Mishkan and the tabernacle. Right. So there's a, a distinct terminology used for how the items of the tabernacle were fashioned but when it comes to the ark it says they shall make which was everyone so everyone who comes to the torah you actually end up getting the crown of king and priest together but if you're just a priest you you get the crown of the priesthood if you're king you get the crown just for a king but torah gets all of them hopefully that makes sense but yeah, we have assorted crowns. There's many different ones. So yeah, definitely do more research and may Hashem bless you with that because there's so much to really unpack on that. So uh, thank you for the drops and thank you for the questions. Where is, okay. So I was trying to share this. Is this now showing up on everyone's screen? Okay, cool. This is the uh, <clears throat> this is the book from Strack and Billerbeck that I was talking about. Okay, so we're reading on Galatians three nineteen. So it says the angels who were present at the giving of the law were the ruling angels of the nations. Oh, Whoa, that's a lot. That's heavy. That's heavy. So the thing about this, there's considered to be 70 nations. Now, obviously, there's not literally 70 nations. But there are 70 nations have 70 ministering angels that are over those nations. So really what we just read in that one sentence is that all the nations through their heavenly ministering angel were present at the giving of the Torah so that each nation should know who Hashem crowned with his Torah. The authority and the dominion that comes with the Torah. All the nations were like, yep, it's Israel. It's not us. That's the power in these angels here that they give testimony to each nation that the Torah was given to Israel. So you remember, like, think about it as a witness stand, kind of like people who are at an event, they see, oh, this has happened. Like, for instance, remember Korach, the cousin of Moshe Rabbeinu, who has the rebellion and says, Moses, Aaron, you guys, y'all are out. Y'all take too much. You put yourself in this position. It's like, no. Korach, if you remember, there was a whole ceremony where Hashem told Moses, anoint your brother as priest. You were there for that. Why are you arguing? Same thing with the nations. Why did the nations rage? Why did the nations say, you know, da, 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 da about Israel? It's like, everyone, if you could just stop. Remember this one time, your ministering angel who were your sustenance and your flow from vitality of uh, spiritual things come from they were all standing there saying yep israel's getting the torah we could have got it but we didn't 
So testimony of the rejection of Torah and testimony of the acceptance of Torah came through angels. So then it says that is probably to say that the Torah was made known to them just as to the nations represented by them. Ugh. I should have just read that too, but this is overwhelming information because right now this is giving testimony that Hashem actually ran around to all the nations and said, do you want the Torah? Nobody accepted it. <laughs> and the ministering angels of each of those nations were there to go, yep, that's right. We're only standing here because nobody wanted it. Only the Jews. I don't know what to do with that information right now. Anyway, Pasik to Rabbi 21, 103b. Rabbi Yossi ben Halapta, uh, CA150, said, the angels present at the giving of the Torah were the ruling angels of the nations of the world. So the angels present at the giving of the law comprised of only God's entourage. Septuagint on Deuteronomy 33.2. So here's the thing. This is transliterated Hebrew right here. Just as a heads up. Uh, actually, it looks like Greek. Okay, yeah, that's, that's transliterated Greek. My bad. <laughs> it's Greek to me. I don't know. But seriously, though. In Deuteronomy 33.2, if you have a humash, if you have commentaries on uh, Deuteronomy, go to 33.2, and it'll bring all this down that we're talking about. As far as Hashem offering the Torah to the nations, angels coming with Hashem to give the Torah, all of that. So here's your verse. This is your source. Deuteronomy 33.2. So, Patik to Rabbi 21, 104a, Rabbi Yudin II, the patriarch. CA 250 said, according to the custom of the world, when a king of flesh and blood goes out to a Majuma celebration, or more generally to celebration of peace, he goes out with 10 children of men as his entourage. But when he goes out to war, he goes out with armies and with legions. Yet with God, it is not so. Rather, when he revealed himself at the Sea of Reeds to lead the battle of his children, <clears throat> he appeared to them without anyone else. Hashem is a man of war, Exodus 15, 3. And when God came down onto Mount Sinai to give Israel the Torah, Mikael and his banner, Gabriel and his banner came down with him. Hashem Elohim will come and all his holy ones with him. So the Midrashim cites Zechariah 14.5. The Targum also translates, and all his holy ones with him. So you can see the term Kedoshim being used right here. The holy ones are also angels, and Yisrael are also likened to angels when we reach a certain level. So parallels are found in Midrash of Psalm 18 and 17, 73b, where Rabbi Judah, the patriarch, is the author. The tradition is anonymous. And then we have Numbers uh, 12, 5, which looks like 
I don't know what the S stands for, so I apologize. Then we have Exodus Rabbah, Numbers Rabbah. It says Rabbi Shimeon, CA150, is the author, Pasikta 108A. A lot of sources right here. The chariots of God are 10,000 fold. And this is transliterated Hebrew, Alfei Shin'an, which is thousands of repetition. Innumerable thousands, probably a gloss to interpret 10,000 fold, basically 10 myriad. This is Psalm 68:18. It says, Rabbi Eliezer ben Padat, CA 270, said, In a place where there are clusters of people, there is a crowd. But when God came to Sinai, thousand times a thousand and ten thousand times ten thousand came down with him. Despite their number, they have free space. As it says, Moab was unhindered, Sha'anan, from his youth, Jeremiah 48, 11. According to this, Sha'anan should be interpreted by means of letter transposition as thousands unhindered. So that was a very chunky commentary, but all of that is to say there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Hashem came out like it was a joyous celebration, and they contrasted that with how Hashem came down with his angels at the sea, that it was just really him, not with his entourage, because Hashem was making war for us in the sea when we went through the, the Yom Suf. But then when it came to us at Mount Sinai, this was more of this is not a war. This is like a big celebration. This is a joyous occasion. So I want everybody here. This is a big party. And you can see how it was thousands upon thousands of angels. And the way that Hebrew works is it's myriad. It's like the highest uh, form. So if you want to talk about beyond thousands, like over a hundred thousand, like want to count a million or a billion, you have to do that by increments of thousands. So that's where that all comes from. So basically, it's just saying there was a whole lot of angels here and there was still plenty of room for everybody to, to breathe. And it wasn't like overcrowded to where you couldn't move, which that in and of itself is a miracle. <clears throat> but anyway, so <clears throat> sorry for the extra heavy commentary there at the end, but just to get a little bit more out of Galatians 319 and how that corresponds with how Hashem gave us the commandments. As you can see, there's a lot there. So we'll end it there for tonight. And I thank everyone for joining me. And Bezrat Hashem, next week, we'll be back uh, to continue in Master Plan and in the handbooks. And uh, if you have any questions or anything you need throughout the week, please let us know. Throw it out in the chat or on the Facebook group. And again, we did uh, announce the email for the Bet Dean. You know, you can reach out to Zaykin Yosef. Zaykh and Moshe and Zaykh and Menashe. We have a three-member bet dean who will be able to field that information that you have, and uh, they will correspond and get back with you as soon as possible. So other than that, may everyone have a blessed week. Let us remember the fallen ones of the Israeli forces for this day of Yom HaZikaron, and may we head into a joyous and uh, meaningful celebration of Yom HaAtzma'ut, ha which is the Independence Day as we move into the following day. So may everyone be blessed. Lila Tov and Shavua Tov. And our blessing for Torah. Uh, after studying Torah. <laughs>
Can't forget that. Found on, found on page 141 in your Art Scroll Sidur. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who gave us the Torah of truth and implanted eternal life within us. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Mashiach now.